Welcome to a special impromptu bonus episode of RetroTube, in which I chat to my longest-suffering pal, Peter. Hopefully about television and nostalgia, and not just arguing over a punctuation mark, which has been known to happen. Peter and I have known each other since about 1979, when we were both microbes. We lived about three miles apart, went to the same primary school, and had many of the same adventures in the wilds of the Lincolnshire countryside. So who better to have a rambling conversation with about our shared 1980s rural childhood? Nobody, that's who. <laughs> so, hello Peter. Hello. Welcome to the RetroTube experience. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're more than welcome. So we're, we're going to talk in a very professional manner, even though we've known each other for 78 years. I know, it's just uh, great to be in your magical realm at last. <laughs> oh, it's good to have you. Can you remember your earliest TV memories? So a very early one must have been uh, The Hobbit on Jack and Ori. Ah, can you remember who it was? It was four people. Bernard Cribbins was Bilbo and, and presumably others too. And I don't know who, who the rest were. It's the kind of thing I would, remember, I would think I'd remember, but I have no memory of that at all. I think I first experienced The Hobbit from our Class 4 teacher reading it in class and getting really into it. And that was the only time I liked her. <laughs> when she was doing story time. The rest of the time, I wasn't very keen. But she read a good story. She was a good storyteller. I'll give her that. That's true, yeah. She did uh, James and the Giant Peach and The Phantom Tollbooth as well. Oh, did she do The Phantom Tollbooth? I know that was on um, Jack and Ori because the theme tune was Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, was it? Yeah, but that would have been, yeah, the, her story times, which would be the... I think most of our teachers did in the last 20 minutes 30 minutes of the day did a story time yeah and her, hers were particularly good and yeah i'd forgotten she did phantom tollbooth one of our other teachers the headmaster mr ben how he had he was doing um uh what was it professor brainstorm was the oh yes the, uh, end of school of day story and he was away one day we had a supply teacher and the supply teacher asked us does your regular teacher do uh, like put on voices for the characters and he didn't, and we and we all said yes. <laughs> and so did she attempt the uh, voices? So she did voices for us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant! <laughs> There's no point in having a supply teacher if you can't get one over on the supply teacher. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, I think probably the earliest. There must be other things anyway. The Hobbit, which is a very core nostalgia topic. I think the first time it was at my grandparents' house as well. So it was this kind of extra unusual place. I remember, I'm not sure if I watched it all the way through or just bits of it, but like I remember Mirkwood and the spiders, ah. but just not having any context around it for what that kind of genre was or how stories worked in that genre or, yeah, just grabbed hold of me and has been with me my whole life since. Well, I think that's often better, isn't it, when you don't have any preconceptions, so it's this entirely brand new thing and you don't, yeah, you've no idea where it might go or what the genre conventions are or any sort of yeah notion like that. Yeah, and then the next time I saw it, it must have been repeated, I don't know how long afterwards, like a, a year or two afterwards, and that was very nostalgic. This this thing that had made such an impact, 
and then having it again, but deepening the relationship with it. Ah, so do you think that was what you got? What got you into the whole Tolkien universe? Because we should uh, let people who are listening know that that was sort of quite a big thing when we were oh, about sort of eleven, twelve, thirteen-ish. We really got into that. The word eleven. I thought you were going to say when we were elves. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> <laughs> What prompted this whole conversation really was a thought I had uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday about how there aren't many things from my life that have been previous enthusiasms or previous obsessions that I've completely grown out of and rejected. Still into Doctor Who, still into the Beatles, uh, all these things that I really enjoyed from being quite small are things that I've, obviously, with the exception of things like play school... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I still don't I don't sit down and have an evening and watch an episode have you tried though well I should maybe give it a go oh it'd be nice to find out what's through the arched window it's been a while imagine if they had just been going on all this time <laughs> they're all really old now a lot of catching up to do <laughs> the thought I had was the only thing that I'd grown out of was uh, high fantasy because we did have that period of being really into the Tolkien-y sort of world. And then it occurred to me that actually I was never really into high fantasy because what we did, Peter and I and our immediate friends, was sort of transposed the Tolkien world onto our own environments. So when we played those games or we used to like write whole stories about it and do illustrated things, there's like an illustrated newsletter and all sorts of stuff. So we really got into it, but it was never the full mystical, magical... But yeah, high fantasy, I guess. is It was more of a magical realist thing, more of a low yeah. fantasy thing, where it, any notion of... Orcs and elves were in our head happening in our world, in the real world, where, you know, the main characters wore jeans and Wellington boots and CNA raincoats and that kind of thing. There was Tolkien, and Mm. I guess I was was more of the reader of Tolkien. I, I sort of transferred it onto everybody else. And we didn't really branch out a lot into other fantasy authors. It was more like we took, we wrote our own... yeah. Tolkien-like stories and put ourselves as characters into it. Was it you or me who who first began that of putting ourselves as characters into it? Oh, you you wrote the first two and a half books. Okay, right. So I so that was already in it when you took over. Yeah, because I yes. I wrote the two and a half little exercise bookfuls of uh, story mm. and uh, lent it to you to read. And <laughs> Little uh, did you when, know. when I got it back, you had <laughs> finished off the, the third book and <laughs> killed most of the characters. <laughs> because I couldn't be bothered to learn them all. <laughs> so I just killed them instead. So we kind of had to retcon that a bit. I think you ended up crossing a lot of it out and saying, or, or adding, like, and then he, you know, he, has, he escaped through the door rather than, like, he got consumed <laughs> by the fire. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I was it. I think it was maybe. Uh, we should sort of explain what it was. This is, it was called The Adventures of Drinola. It was the, sort of the overarching name of the whole series and then each of these little exercise books that you 
liberated from school the first few were like these really bright vivid green color ones i think in those early ones the only character like the real world characters in it were you and your brother richard who had your um fantasy world pseudonyms of Vorigond and vorator but they were sort of your avatars within that world but you weren't it wasn't you were imagining yourselves as you know with the, the with the horned helmets and the rippling muscles and the big broadswords and all that kind of thing it was essentially just you and richard <laughs> you weren't overtly children or anything but at the same time you weren't fantasy versions of yourself you weren't like conan the barbarian suddenly or any of that sort of thing it was it was it was very much that kind of magical realism hinterworld not deliberately there was no there was no deliberate thought of let's make this a magical realist thing rather than a high fantasy it was very intuitive wasn't it i think yeah it was just the, the natural thing to do but it worked well so we, we could kind of invest in it more and we we were writing about environments that we knew but they were just heightened a bit so it was really fun to write it was really fun to get into i didn't have I'm a year younger than you, almost exactly. So you are a lot more advanced in the writing skills than I was. My my contribution looked very basic next to yours. You had quite a quite a good way, way with words. Uh, some of them well, might have been Tolkien's words. Possibly. <laughs> it was very uh, complimentary. It was because I, I was probably too Tolkien derivative and you freed it up a bit at the time i you you were reading tolkien and you were my only re, my only direct relationship to tolkien was the hobbit so you'd read all the others yeah so you you knew that world back to front and you had like the bestiary of tolkien and all those reference books so you were really you're you were a proper like 12 year old scholar of tolkien that's right whereas i it was all second hand i just got it all through you so at that time i was reading doctor who novelizations i so my my writing influence was uh, mainly Terence Dix, who had a much more basic style of writing. But it, it really it kind of liberated the stories from being, <laughs> how can we tell Tolkien stories with ourselves as closely as possible to, yeah. oh, actually, we, we can do anything. We can blow up the Red Knight's castle <laughs> and bring in some ice warriors. <laughs> this is the thing as well. <laughs> Yes, I had no compunction about bringing in ice warriors <laughs> into this Tolkieny landscape. I felt Daleks and Cybermen are more overtly robotic, so they'd be a, a step too far. But essentially, the, the ice warriors are lizard people, so they do fit in quite well. They, they are yeah. based on uh, their armor is based on Viking armor. What about the wooden people, the Medocs? The Medocs. I was trying to remember the name of those. Yes, uh, so they were uh, me wanting to do kind of autons or cybermen so me wanted to do robots without doing robots in this yeah uh tolkien landscape that, that was inspired oh thank you I, <laughs> that's not my <laughs> that wouldn't be my view of it <laughs> my view would be a cheap knockoff yeah but the idea of a wooden robot i suppose so yeah they had a big wooden spaceship yeah it was terrible <laughs> but I, yeah i think we each other enjoyed our sort of yeah we enjoyed each other's writing more yeah that's that's something we we've observed many times over the years that you get sick of your own thing and you think you can see where it came from and it doesn't there's nothing magical about it when the other person sees it they're oh what i don't how, how did they think of that yeah i think even as i was writing the medocs i think even medoc is a doctor who character 
I think I think there is somebody, and I can't remember off the top of my head who, but I think there is a character in a Doctor Who book that I had been writing, reading at the time called Medoc. I think maybe the Macra Terror rings a bell, but I'm not I'm not encyclopedic enough about Doctor Who. I don't know. It's, it was all mysterious and exciting for me. <laughs> but I think even at the time as I, as I was writing that particular one, I felt really cheap and dirty. <laughs> it's like... It's like, oh, I'm just writing wooden autons, essentially. Uh, yeah, so we and then we wrote Blinsby, which is our sort of hauntological. How would you describe it? Working through the trauma of our school days, I suppose. <laughs> but turning it into a, a fun comedic romp, but also quite mysterious and hauntological and yeah, textured. Yeah, kind of Gnostic background, not background, not philosophy interpretation anyway and we're sufficient egomaniacs that most of the things we've ended up writing together we've also been in yeah (laughs) almost exclusively we just end up putting ourselves into it but it's a great way of just defeating that sort of the the blank character page of we know who we are so we can be characters in it and then you avoid the blandness of the central character yeah the syndrome of the bland central character where we we're we're quite good at seeing a version of ourselves quite subjectively, I think. Yeah. So one of the fun things about writing Blinsby, which we wrote when we were a bit older and is technically still ongoing, was that I could send myself up and it was quite liberating to essentially mock myself, my 10-year-old self quite mercilessly. Yeah, there's a whole kind of um, layers behind layers of, in a way, the characters of ourselves as children in Blinsby think of themselves on some level as the noble rangers of ranger guard in the in the adventures of drinnell yeah especially my character there's a scene where where they think they've become trapped on a, on an island and he shifts from they just like on a, on a a school trip to right this is a survival situation um, we're going to have to possibly be here for years we can use <laughs> rushes as uh, tender yes and they're, they're not on an, an island in the middle of the sea or anything they're just on an island in a river so That's it's not right, like there's yeah. no hope of rescue it's just like right we're, we're in survival mode now <laughs> steering us back to the nostalgia theme that's all about nostalgia, really. It's sort of one of the main kind of themes. It's almost a plot point. But I, th- I think wherever it came from, nostalgia has been a big um, guiding thing for both of us. Yeah, and I think it's not it's not the kind of glib, superficial nostalgia so much as the sensation of nostalgia. I think what they call the Proustian rush. Although I've never liked that term because I don't think it should belong to Proust. I don't think it should belong to one person. I was just uh, I was just thinking the words in my head. Oh, I like that term. <laughs> Better write it down. <laughs> Oops. There's something um, melodic about it, Proustian rush. I mean, the actual words are nice, but it's just, it seems such a specific yeah. name for such a grand and all-encompassing and, you know, it's it's part of humanity, I think, is that sensation. Yeah. So Proust, what's he got? Why, why does he own it? So I suppose this word nostalgia, it's often used in a, well, a kind of delusion that, the past was the, the golden age and rose-tinted goggles and this kind of thing. But I think we use it in a, a broader way to mean feeling a kind of aesthetic. Yes. And it's not like when, when I say I'm nostalgic or I feel nostalgia about a time in life, it definitely doesn't mean that I want to go back there or think that 
it wasn't horrible. It is more like, I don't even know what it is. It, I, I wonder what, when I first heard the word nostalgia, I knew the concept before. I, I remember, like, I can't picture the scene or I don't know how it happened, but I, I remember the feeling of, oh, there's a word for this. Right. A bit like when we discovered um, synesthesia. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's yeah. a word for this. Yeah, that's the, like a thing that I knew about when I started primary school and I have to write my, my name on the cover of projects about the Egyptians and I would write each letter of, of my name with the correct colour. And it's one of those things that it doesn't come up in conversation and so you don't, you never get to find out that other people don't necessarily think of T as dark green and A as yellow. I think it's something that people talk about a bit more and are maybe a bit more used to. But certainly back in the day, if we try to talk to other people about the idea, because I was exactly the same. I had, you know, we say, oh, what colour is Tuesday? It's like, oh, dark blue, of course. It's like, no, it's not. It's red, oh, yeah, that kind of thing. But it's a very natural conversation. But you, you know, try and have that conversation with other people. And they're like, what are you talking about? Or they would just make up a colour. Yes, just to please you, just so you go away. Oh, it's green. Yeah, because when I first heard of it, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Everybody has their own system of colours for the letters, the numbers, the uh, days of the week, the months of the year. I'll, I'll study this, so create a survey, and I gave it out to people at school. They all filled it in, um, but in retrospect, they were probably just making it up to humour me. I did exactly the same thing, and possibly you'd inspired me. Yeah. And maybe, I'd, yeah, I'd heard that you'd done it, and so I did it with some people at school and had exactly the same thing, that some people really reacted strongly to it and go, oh, yes, you know, this is, yeah, I didn't realise other people did this, but this is totally mine, and other people go, oh, yeah, red, green, black, here you go. I think there might be gradations of it, though, because my mm. dad, if I remember rightly, said that, the decades were different shades of grey. Right. That rings a bell. And that's very specific. That's not just trying to humour me. Didn't your dad say that the 50s were very bright and colourful? I need to ask him. I'm, I'm curious there. That, that's something I remember, that, that, like, from our perspective, the 50s seems black and white. Yeah. Uh, but I seem and to only remember people that... who lived through them would <laughs> remember that they were in colour. <laughs> yeah, and he said, I think I remember... It's, this is me. I'm dad splaining now. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you what your dad said. <laughs> but no, this is this is my memory that that, that. <laughs> that, that the 50s was very colourful, but the 60s was grey and black and white and that kind of thing. Ah, I wonder if people who lived through the 20th century saw things as being colourful until film came along. Like like people who lived in the 19th century and then the 20th century. Yeah. Saw things as being colourful until photography appeared. Right, and then it all became black and white. Maybe we do a bit. I think I do a bit. I think like the the Middle Ages, really, really colourful era. That's Victorian times, black and white. Mm. I wonder if it would be this unique era in history that has that was in black and white when all of the rest of history has been in colour in our imagination. That's true, yeah. There's this, like, this, this small chunk, these like yeah. six decades, at a guess, six or seven decades that were just mostly in black and white and then everything either side is brightly coloured. Like a geological layer of black and white. <laughs> <laughs> like some terrible extinction event that just left a radioactive <laughs> trace. Because I think that's the thing about the word nostalgia. It means a few different things. So there is that slightly 
there's that reactionary idea of like everything now is rubbish everything in the past was better the further back you go the better things were there's also the nostalgia for periods you didn't live in so like watching Jeeves and Worcester uh-huh, yeah. and that being very cosy and nostalgic even though we weren't alive in the 20s but it's... yeah especially because we weren't alive in the 1920s <laughs> yeah so we have this very rarefied rather sort of privileged vantage point well my, my childhood um, impression of the middle ages as being great fun <laughs> knights with colourful shields and the excitement of battles yeah i think war in generally when you're that age there is this idea there's a point at which you realize actually war's horrible no one should have to go through that why do we do the yeah up to that point you go wow what a great adventure you're watching these alistair mclean films on tv going woo (laughs) this is really exciting i wish i could do that (laughs) yeah (laughs) hoping for the next war (laughs) yeah feeling a bit cheated when the um the cold war ended without (laughs) I do. I actually remember the exact moment where I I made a um, paper plane, and I flung it around the living room, and I said to my and I think I'd made little modifications to it or something like that, and so it was a bit. It was a fancy paper plane. I said to my dad, "This is a World War Four plane," yeah. and my dad said, "Oh, there won't be a World War Four because <laughs> killjoy." <laughs> Because the world will end at World War Three, like World War Three is going to oh, will destroy the world. <laughs> I see. So we won't get we won't get beyond the World War Three. I see. <laughs> and this is in the eighties, of course, when the possibility of World War Three was bubbling under all the time. So yeah. it, it had gone from this thing of like, oh, maybe there'll be a World War Three. So there'll be lots of new uniforms to enjoy, <laughs> lots of new vehicles. That'll be exciting yeah. to like, oh, we're all going to die. Hooray. <laughs> uh, so that was a, yes, that was a big wake up moment of, oh, maybe this isn't fun. And then learning more and more about the brutality of it and the awfulness of it. And then you have to like go further back into the past to find the fun wars. Yes. And then you, you meet medieval weapon enthusiasts at some kind of display and you realise how grim and awful medieval weapons were and <laughs> what they were designed to do to the human body. And you start to feel sad and nauseous and realise that... War is never fun, kids. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, I think the the other nostalgia is the sensation of nostalgia when it's your personal... No- well, I think there's even two nostalgias within that. There is that more sort of rose-tinted personal nostalgia and there's a, as a kind of concept, but there's just the sensation of nostalgia where you are walking down the street and you smell a perfume and it's like, oh... That's possibly an old yeah. perfume that an old teacher wore. Or yesterday I was out walking about and I, I walked past a an air vent that just had this warm air coming out of it and I smelt it and it smelt like a secondary school, like a room in one of my secondary schools. And it's one of those nostalgias where you can't... It's really vivid, but you can't quite place exactly where you know it from. But you do get Monsieur Proust's rush. It's funny how, how smells are especially like that, that sort of disconnected from our speaking and conscious parts of memory. But you, you see something and you think, oh, yeah, that was that. Was that. Mm. But you smell something and it can be really, really vivid and familiar, but you just no idea what it is or where to fit it in. I think there's a particular time in maybe your mid to late teens when you feel those things particularly strongly. And I think that's kind of me- when we went 
we had that particular obsession with trying to almost replicate and synthesize that sensation. Yeah. Because we used to make those sound collages where we would have all those different sound sources running in the room at the same time and then a single recorder. So you'd have some classical music and then you'd have clips from Star Wars playing and then you'd have people reading things and voices and sound effects, sea wash and birds and just move the tape yeah. recorder around so it would be this kind of dreamlike wash of sound that some of the sources would come up close as you moved the tape recorder towards it and others would recede into the distance and you could like lie on your bed with all the with the curtains drawn and like in the dark and listen to that and it could really transport you into an almost meditative state where you'd be feel dreamlike and nostalgic incorporate bits of bits of our lives or bits of things that we would have done in the past like recordings of ourselves when we were much younger things things that we listened to all the so it was like a life accumulating yes we used to send each other tapes we used to make these c90 tapes Mm. full of sketches and sound collages and all sorts of things clips from things Bits of music. Ah, yeah, the the C90, the the compromise between the the C60, which was very sturdy but a bit short, and the C120, which always broke. It was far too long, two hours. (laughs) That that 90 minutes was a perfect length as well. So we'd send each of these things to the post. What sort of things did we we put on them? We would uh, have wonders. We would just wander through the countryside and and try and, and speak above the wind, striking the... Microphone forcefully. Yeah, street lights are commanding path. Got the orange guy because I haven't got my uh, glasses on or anything, so they're huge, red up orange things. Massive, swollen, crazy things. I remember you did one where you were imagining being in your bed and being carried off by a flood. Yes, that was fun. I used the sound, I had two sound effect records that I borrowed from school uh, yeah. uh, which I still have somewhere one was the Doctor Who sound effect record and the other was Mike Harding's BBC one which was beaches and fun fairs and theatre crowds so yeah the, the floods came washed me out of my bed and I ended up going down the, the through the floods down the river and then I think I ended up at some kind of spaceship so then I got to use the Doctor Who sounds and I'd make it all up as I went along there was no like 
there was no written text. It was me just improvising and describing what was around me whilst playing in these sound effects. And uh, sadly, I don't have a copy of that, so I can't drop in <laughs> examples. I can only drop in examples from yours. Yeah, some of them were more, more structured. They'd be more like we had an idea for a kind of sketch and others would just be rambling thoughts or wandering around the countryside. Yeah, or, or sound experiments. Soon you have lots of ideas. Lots of ideas with holes in. Isabella Summer Jupiter Fever is like that. Her sedge lips emit Demerara syllogisms. Are the lollipop men taking scalps? Again? Paraplegic chimeras on rusted eyelids. Black thunder in the veins of the vinegar moon. Cruel crotchets, iridescent. Sequester your ear. Wasp tango in the August ointment. Yeah, yeah. We had to do everything either live, talking to the tape recorder, or if we wanted to do any actual edit, it was all through the the double tape deck, so it's just tape to tape, so you'd have to edit from one tape to another. And I had the sound... I had the, the full soundtrack that uh, my friend Philip had recorded for me of The Five Doctors, so I think there was one whole section which was te- five minutes long, ten minutes long, of just... Uh, a loop of a character saying, What? No, not the mind probe. <laughs> what? No, not the mind probe. Yeah. <laughs> and it was torture to make, but I just was feeling mischievous. <laughs> so- it was a joy to listen to. It was things like that were, were turning points of you realise that something else is possible. I think just sort of because we had an audience of one or two, like yeah. you and Richard would listen to them and. At my end, it was mainly just me that listened to them. It gave you sort of that lack of self-consciousness to experiment. There wasn't really an audience, so you could just do anything. Well, there, there was one um, where you had multiple tracks of your voice and you were, you were telling the story and usually you were saying the same thing in each of the tracks, but sometimes you would diverge. <laughs> so it was like this kind of many worlds of quantum mechanics, <laughs> giddy rush of... Oh, what, what? This is a new reality I'm experiencing now. That was another of those kind of liberating turning points. And of course, the best one of all, I think my favourite bits were always, and I do have this so I can drop in a, a clip from it, was editing together the Star Wars and Indiana Jones storybooks. Yeah. They were normally sort of two or three or four minutes long, but I ended up doing it like an 11 minute long one, which took me hours, but it was really <laughs> satisfying and it just went along at a really fast pace. Only seconds after the two droids blasted off, Princess Leia was captured and thrown into the mine to work with the other children. Through the hatch strode a black cloaked helmeted figure, Darth Vader, the fierce Imperial warrior. The evil look in his eyes faded and was gone. Commander, we're going to set all these rebel soldiers free. Darth Vader knocked out dozens of Imperial stormtroopers and used his keys to free the helpless rebel soldiers as they fled the mine. A shaggy eight-foot Wookiee suddenly attacked Darth Vader. Fiercely, Darth Vader battled the giant, but his blows had no effect. Indy yelled to Willie and Shorty. Thanks, Shorty. I'm okay now. Shorty grabbed a torch and jammed it into Indy's side. Fiercely, Indy battled Shorty. Shorty finally tripped Indy. Darth Vader whizzed away into a tunnel. Indy threw his laser. Chewie and I will take care of this. Punching priests left and right, he led them back into the mine. Darth Vader curled up in a ball, turning green. 
<laughs> that was always like a really exciting day when a new tape would plop through the post box and I'd retreat to my room and put it in the hi-fi and draw the curtains and I'd just spend 90 minutes listening to whatever you'd sent me. Mm. The later ones were often lengthy readings from whatever you'd been writing for either Blinsby or Single Isle Light or one of the writing projects that we'd been working on. And that was always good as well. It almost worked better in audio than it did on the page because I could get your intonation and your intentions behind it and that sort of thing. The river ducked with acute embarrassment under a furry fuel pipe and into the inverted pyramid of silt-blessed concrete of amphitheatrical and sarlacc steepness that would be its unwelcome home till it emerged a mile later on the other side of Newell. Less limpid, perhaps, but plenty relieved. Here, the occidental aurora was only just fading, since it was the four great magnets rising sable and sarsen-like on Newell Hill that were the cause of the phenomenon. The Newellites, who hated colours of every kind and frowned on hues, put up with this special display as an, as an unwarranted side effect of their enigmatic monument and generally misdirected the baffled tourists who now and then drifted in over the summer months lured by the gaseous appoggiaturas and twists. The man's true purpose, of course, was to attract iron-rich meteorites to the town, ionic fireworks notwithstanding. As a cheap source of metals, small asteroids and the occasional trapped satellite had proved invaluable to the Newell economy, allowing her to export weaponry and cutlery and nuggetry all over the ravelling vale to the gall of rival Chedlock, whose main product was a potent beer called Nettle Stingo, the waste products of which, ejected into the river from Danquis Brewery, turned the flow green and stingy for a mile and a half, filling the banks and bordering towpaths with limping, apoplectic fish. And there would be the ones where you would tell a story and you have your uh, keyboard and you'd be doing the, the music and sound effects on that as you were going along. The police surged in through the door like a big blue surge surge. Unfortunately, they had gone mad through too much blue and were now just arresting random objects at random. They arrested a cheese grater for the greater good, they arrested a ruler for good measure, and they arrested the devil just for the hell of it. They also arrested my car for trafficking, a battery for battery, the pepper for assault, a pack of cards for dealing, and an egg timer for no reason whatsoever, which I consider a travesty and a miscarriage of justice. You have the right to remain silent, the lead police officer mouthed. I became gradually dismayed and also thirsty. I turned on the tap, but instead of water, ants came out. Why are you coming out of my tap? I said to the ants. We have swapped with water, said the ants. It's an exchange programme. Water is building an ant hill. Well, we are quenching thirst and washing people and people's pets and people's relatives and people's relatives' pets and also a dirty plate. But when they returned home... The ants found that water had eroded an anthill instead. Again, it's sort of my ideas felt really naff, but then you got it without, you know, when you received it at your end, you didn't have... I didn't know where it came from. Yeah, it was all surprising and magical and listening to it in the dark and who knew what was coming next. And, and you'd, get, you'd have your own mental images of it as well. That's right, yeah. But the actual event of doing them, as, as you were saying, it, it, we were performing it, weren't we? And so all, all the objects would be, we'd be moving them around in the air to, to be near 
different microphones, and sometimes it would be it could be a bit a bit disastrous, <laughs> like the time when uh, you picked up uh, our Commodore sixty four computer to slam it down on the desk to make a, a, an emergency sound effect. I don't remember that. Oh no, <laughs> that wouldn't have gone down well. <laughs> that was surprising and shocking. <laughs> I, I was into it. <laughs> It survived. <laughs> I still have traumatic memories from that time we were doing a, a uh, an audio play around your house, and we were listening to very loud, ba- oh, yes. <laughs> very loud bagpipe music, and your dad came in bellowing at us. It's in the early hours of the morning. I think it was about eight and eight at night or something, but it was just very loud. And it was um... it was Campbellton Loch. Yeah. It was some like marching band version of Campbellton Lock, and it was this climax to whatever audio audio play we'd been making that was around your house. And yeah, turn that noise. <laughs> and that, like one of one of my things I really hate is getting told off. Like other people can brush it off, but I, you know, it's one of my phobias getting told off. So <laughs> it was not. It was sad. If ever I listen to that, <laughs> I still get tense when that bit's coming up, <laughs> waiting for the door to open. Like turn that noise down because it's still on there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to hear that again now. <laughs> it would be worse for you because I like I would see the rest of him and him at other times and not <laughs> not being angry and having got over it very quickly. Whereas whereas for you that would be the the impression and then you wouldn't have the the aftermath of oh it's all right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I think I was this is when I was staying over. This is when I lived in Milton Keynes, so I would have been there for a little yeah. while after that. So it would have, it would all been all right afterwards. But when you're the guest at someone else's house, especially like if your own dad yells at you, yeah, that's all. I mean it's not all right, but it's all right because it's your own dad. But if you're the guest at someone else's house and their dad yells at you, <laughs> like, oh, no, this is like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Another aspect of nostalgia as well which i think not many people talk about is that you get different flavors of it like each thing has its own flavor of nostalgia it's, it's you it's there's not a, a blanket nostalgic sensation because i know that we always if we went out walking at night and we'd say is, is this is this a star wars night is this a 2001 a space odyssey sort of night where it's like, what's what's the night sky making you feel? This makes us sound very pretentious, possibly. <laughs> but because we both grew up in Lincolnshire, which has these big, wide, flat horizons you can see for 20 miles in either direction when you're out in the country. Uh, and so you get these big kind of dusty, dusky, hessian sunsets. So it would be quite like Tatooine and you'd feel like Luke looking over at the twin sunsets and it'd be that kind of light quality. There would be kind of like a network of associations. Like for example, The Empire Strikes Back. That the the crisp, snowy, bright light and the space scenes. And then that connects in my mind with the science room at school, not on a snowy day or anything, but just a, a bright sunny day at the end of term being shown or maybe it wasn't the end of term being shown anyway being shown kind of science videos and images of rocket ships in space and just that kind of bright white crisp sunshine on earth and sciencey space stuff but then all of that connecting specifically with the science room at school which is neither sciencey nor <laughs> nor sunshiny. Star Wars, I think, in particular, it has layers of nostalgia to it. So there's the nostalgia of the original flush of when we it was on TV two or three times. Maybe there'd be a year when it's missing, but there's two or three, four times in the 
early to mid 80s when we were growing up and it was on TV we had the Star Wars figures and we'd play Star Wars with our friends and everyone at school was obsessed with Star Wars and everything was Star Wars oh my god I'm going to explode with too much Star Wars <laughs> so that's all kind of one nostalgia association but then it must have been summer 1990 I came to your house it was really hot it was incredibly hot uh, this was before it must have been 1990 or possibly 89 because it was before I had a, a video recorder because we were extremely late in getting one we got one for christmas 1990 we had our first vcr it must have been 90 because it was surely 90 degrees fahrenheit that's how i remember it <laughs> i think it was 90 yeah i think it was 1990 so it was extreme unbearably hot outside so we shut the curtains and we watched all three films on video was it all the same day or was it consecutive days i think it was the same day yeah we watched them back to back and we just had breaks to go out to Round the corner to the village shop to buy Cherry Aid, I remember. Because I remember just how bright and vivid red it looked in the bright sunlight. And then we'd shut the curtains and huddle in doors. And that's when I, that's the first time I ever noticed the special effects looking a bit flimsy, seeing the green map boxes around a lot of the spaceships. And it's like, oh, I don't remember yeah, this. Yeah, we were trying to adjust, the, adjust all the, the settings on the television to either make that fainter or brighter this was a bit of a shock it's like oh it's, it's some of these effects are quite not perfect not perfect at all and there's this sort of wobbly animated rectangular box overlaid over a lot of these spaceship effects but that in itself now looking back i can watch star wars and get the nostalgia for summer 1990 when we were having yeah. the nostalgia for like four or five or six years earlier yeah at that stage when we were already connoisseur <laughs> we were we knew our stuff and we were writing our own spoofs of star wars <laughs> before that was a thing that everyone did and then of course before actually before that there was a, another slight star wars nostalgia before that because you had them all on audio cassette oh yeah like the soundtracks you taped off the tv so it was i hadn't seen it in probably only three or four years but at that age that seems like a long 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 time so i borrowed those cassettes off you and i just listened to the soundtrack which had a lot of TV hum. So just throughout, there was a just a hum from the TV cathode ray tube, which again was very evocative. And I couldn't quite remember what it all looked like. So I was just listening to the soundtrack and building the pictures of it in my head and trying to imagine, stroke, remember what it looked like. And we ended up using... You create your own Star Wars. You do. And then at the end of 1990 for Christmas, I'd, I'd anticipated that we'd probably be getting a VCR for Christmas. So I'd borrowed it off a friend. That's the same year that I had the flu for Christmas. So everything was a bit otherworldly and a bit trippy. Oh, flu nostalgia. Flu nostalgia. So I had flu nostalgia with uh, Star Wars. So that, again, that Christmas 1990 with the flu watching Star Wars on with the excitement of, the, of a new video. And I'd been watching Poltergeist with the flu around that time. Uh, I think <laughs> Poltergeist with the flu. <laughs> And I'd got the first They Might Be Giants record for Christmas, or my brother had, and that's a very odd, angular, surreal record anyway. So the whole thing is quite its own little capsule nostalgia as well. So that's another layer when it, whenever I watch it, I can transport myself back to the Christmas 1990 as opposed to the summer 1990 Star Wars nostalgia, which is a whole distinctive other thing in its own. Yeah, we became quite, we, we became nostalgists. We did. We had our, our whole science of nostalgia <laughs> and uh, categorised all the, all the different kinds. Yeah, and not, hopefully not in an obnoxious way. No, um, <laughs> obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing I worry about. 
<laughs> and I think at that age as well, time is quite compressed or elongated, one or the other. So yes, like I say, we, we would be nostalgic, very nostalgic about quite recent things, like the whole Adventures of Drinil Tolkieny phase that we had. And yeah, that's a, that's a thing that that it's easy to forget how how close together we would now think of those events as as being. Yeah, it was three years previously. Like when we were writing our nostalgic interpretation of primary school days (laughs) in, what, like when we were 19 or 20. Yeah, so we started writing Blinsby, which was our super oozing with nostalgia uh, interpretation of our primary school days. We started writing that summer 94, and I'd left primary school in 86, so that's eight years different. That's not long at all by our aged standards. Which is not long at all, no. But subjectively a very long time. Yeah, it felt like a whole other world. It it, it felt as long ago then as it sort of does now. But I, and I suppose part of that is, well, you are a different person and so you, you've changed so much in that short space of time that, and you've been through so many new experiences, it's naturally going to feel longer exactly yeah the difference between 11 and 19 is vastly different to the difference between 19 and 45 i think but my example i always give of, of the the stretching out of time when you're young is i still think that the majority of my life has been spent lying in bed aged very small trying to get to sleep in spite of all the ghosts and crocodiles <laughs> The ghosts and crocodiles, yes. It's trying to get to sleep on Christmas Eve because you're too excited about Star Wars figures and Beatles records. Yeah, or even in the summer when it's not even <laughs> night time. Yes. Not fair. You can hear other children outside still playing and you look out the window and you see your dad mowing the lawn. Tell me about it, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's like, it's not dark. This isn't night. <laughs> I'm not going to be asleep before night, so why are we going through this charade? Yeah. I didn't understand about the days getting shorter and longer and night falling at different times and frankly even if i did understand it it wouldn't make a difference (laughs) this takes us back to something we mentioned when we were planning this even though we haven't planned it we essentially planned it last night yeah which was just that that feeling of um that i have anyway of, of loyalty to the past and being then just kind of promising myself that I'm not going to grow up and forget this. I'm going to remember the injustice of having to go to bed in, in summertime when it's still light. Yes, and, and specifically the example of saying to little kids, like, oh, school, it's best day of your life. Oh, enjoy it while you're there. And being incredulous, <laughs> thinking there's no way you could have thought that at the time. <laughs> You've forgotten. I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to betray myself as I am now. And they must have forgotten because I think a lot of kids, uh, I think schools are getting gradually nicer over the years and i think a lot of kids now do genuinely enjoy school because teachers are nicer and you know a lot of them are younger and they're not evil harridans <laughs> who like to just punish children arbitrarily because they're in a mood or that sort of thing and that's and then our parents generation like when my dad talks about his school days yeah even though he will he you know at the time would have openly said oh school best day of your life he would also tell these like he'd get caned for not being good at art. 
like f- physically hit for not being good at drawing or like for getting sums wrong they'd be physically punished and it's like how is this the best days of your life this makes yeah. no sense i heard that at least some of my nieces were sad at the, the thought of not going to school during the pandemic i'd be loving it if this was going on in 1985 <laughs> oh my word i'd be having the best time yeah. ever things are happening at the wrong time <laughs> Uh, we lived for days of school i think the only downside would be that my dad would probably be stuck at home and he would be in his it's the end of the world mode so i i would spend a lot of the time scared that we were going to die not only from a pandemic but also from nuclear war so it would be two for one but I swear we had more snow days though steering it slightly back to tv tell me about some of the your scary tv memories because you have before and i've always quite enjoyed them <laughs> <laughs> I remember once, as as we've spoken about, I did not like uh, going to bed. I remember once, uh, I would find pretext to get up, go to the toilet was a natural and obvious one, so I would often get up to go to the toilet again. And one time, uh, my parents, they were watching a kind of gothic horror in which involved some kissing and cuddling in a grave. Ooh. And I regretted getting up to go to the toilet. <laughs> I didn't understand that. <laughs> but that's, uh, this is a new one. I don't think I've heard this one before. <laughs> I didn't make it easy to go to sleep. Heavens. It's very disturbing. Um, literally lots of scary things. A documentary about Thomas Hardy in which... Oh, I don't know. I interpreted it as being something about a ghost. It might have been metaphorical in the documentary, but what I took from it was something very spooky and I had a a nightmare about it. And I had this um, toy, plastic toy soldiers and they were, it was a second world war era. There was the British soldiers and the German soldiers and they had these kind of artillery things, not really based on any real piece of artillery, but you would just put a uh, a counter of the appropriate, a plastic counter of the appropriate size colour into their thing and then pull out a little tray on the spring and let go of it and it would shoot the counter at the other side. In my dream, in my dream, those counters had become kind of like haunted medallions. <laughs> wow. Which, the spirit of Thomas Hardy. <laughs> I must just say, this is a very Peter Tunstall dream. Yeah, and I, I tried to scream and nothing would come wow. out. Wow. My first memory of that happening in a dream. See, see I thought I'd, I'd heard all your frightening TV stories, but I don't remember any of these. The one I remember specifically is the sudden skull and the chiming bell. Oh, yeah. it was. I think it was a documentary about medieval times I suppose this is another example of, like, to me, the medieval times were the, the most fun time you could imagine. But this was filling in some of the uh, the gaps, and it was they were talking about the plague, the Black Death, and to represent the Black Death, the, the screen just suddenly went went black, and there was this kind of skull face came towards the screen or span around, and that terrified me. Yeah, I think because it was unexpected, you said, like... It was unexpected <laughs> and it was a skull, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, did, was it you that read the entry for ghosts in the dictionary? Oh, yes, in uh, class three at primary school, aged eight, we had this sort of illustrated children's dictionary, 
and I read the entry for Ghosts, and it said, Ghost, the spirit of somebody who has died that comes back to Earth to frighten the living, or something, <laughs> something like that. But nowhere in it did it say, in folklore or in the human imagination. <laughs> and even though I knew that that was the case, that ghosts didn't exist, it really, really troubled me that the dictionary didn't make that perfectly clear. <laughs> yes, there's that seed of doubt where, like, an official source... Yeah. Yeah. My scary TV oh. stuff, I sort of... I have two layers of... or two categories of scary TV. One was the thing that was scary and I knew it was scary, and I knew it was supposed to be scary, and it frightened me yeah. in the moment while it was on, but afterwards it went away because it was Doctor Who or Blake 7. And we know that Doctor Who and Blake 7 are scary, and there's going to be monsters, yeah. there's going to be weird, lonely, violent deaths in the vacuum of space, there's going to be people's heads turning inside out and green goo coming out because it's Doctor Who. But you're prepared for it, and it's neatly fenced it's, off. It's in, in, it's in its proper context. Own so yeah. you get the you get the nervousness bubbling up as the theme tune's playing, and what what awful things are we going to see this week? And is you know who's going to die unexpectedly? And yeah. it's like is Romana going to die even? And yeah, that kind of thing. And then end credits. Oh, I can relax till next week. The things which troubled me that I found scary in an unpleasant way were things from light entertainment where the audience was laughing. Yeah. For example, Frank Spencer. I had I was worried by grown adults who seemed out of control. Huh. So not necessarily just zany and wacky, but they just didn't seem in control of themselves. Mm. And Frank Spencer, he seemed like he was in peril, like actual mortal peril a lot of the time, because he did these quite extreme stunts. So you were afraid for him? Yes, I was afraid for him, but also the juxtaposition of that with the audience wetting themselves laughing at it. Yeah. And particularly, there's a, I think it's a Christmas, it must be a Christmas one, he's playing an angel in the pantomime. Huh. And there's a, a pulley system to make him go up and down as if he's flying, but there's some kind of miscalculation. He's propelled at speed up through the roof of the church, mm. onto the roof, and he's howling with fear. He's mm. screaming, he's crying, he's petrified. He thinks he's going to fall off and die. And the audience are laughing. And I found this horrifying, frightening. In the city of David. <laughs> It's a really unpleasant, grating theme tune anyway, but, but but sort of my feelings about that particular scene are seared into this theme tune, so even now I can't listen to that theme tune without that horrible, sort of unpleasant, frightening... So the Doctor Who theme tune, or the Blake 7 theme tune, ooh, but the some Mothers Do Have Them theme tune, ooh, it, it's that kind of thing. Or the opening titles to Record Breakers, there was... 
in the must be the late seventies, early eighties ones, there was a couple of shots consecutive to each other, which troubled me. One of the shots was Roy Castle and an unknown man whose face was turned away from the camera. They seemed to be trapped down a very narrow alleyway, like chest to chest, and they couldn't get past each other. And Roy Castle was wearing quite a perturbed expression on his face. <laughs> as if they were just wedged down this uh, and these are clips from previous shows so they're not filmed especially for the opening title so they're completely out of context and then the following shot or the, like a couple of shots later is Roy Castle holding this large organic object I think it's a big cocoa bean or something it's something like a cocoa bean it's huge it's like okay. two or three times the size of his head and he's holding it above his head and he's again he's looking perturbed and he's sinking yeah, he's sinking out of frame under the weight of this thing. It's it's out there. It took me years to find it again, and quite recently I, I did discover those opening titles on YouTube, so it's out there. And I hated it. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't... It's, it's, this is a light entertainment show. It's on children's TV. But what's this? What What is this? What are these inexplicable... Being, being ambushed by the horror. Yeah. It's like, why are they wedged down a narrow alleyway? And what's that? What's that thing he's carrying? That kind of weird organic alien-looking pod. <laughs> I suppose it illustrates the the miracle and strangeness of uh, of world records. <laughs> that what 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 record was being broken in that dark alley? I guess the world's narrowest alley. It can't be something, can it? I suppose if you think about it, we're probably all breaking world records all of the time without realizing it. If only we, if only we knew what record it was. You're probably right. Yeah, The Liverbirds was another one. You've mentioned this. Yeah, it's a sitcom set in Liverpool. So one of them was Neris Hughes, and she was on camera, but her friend, who's the actress, I forget her name, she'd not seen her in a few days, and she's started to get a bit worried. Where's she gone to? She's she's said out loud all her dubbed-over thoughts. Maybe she's been washed down the plug hole. And I took this literally as as a thing that could actually happen to someone. And at the time, my mum was in the bath. So I remember banging on the door and howling. <laughs> I... <laughs> no, and I didn't realise that having baths were that dangerous. <laughs> so I was like, Mum, Mum, no, maybe I'll never see my mum again. She'll get washed down the plug hole. <laughs> there is the thing in common as well that the Record Breakers theme tune is a... Like the Some Mothers Do Have... Mothers Do Have a theme tune is a bit minor key and a bit weird. And then the... Liverbirds theme tunes. They have a kind of weird minor key theme tune in common. Unless it's just me imposing my fears onto that. It's like a, a whole kind of phobia being built up out of these these different yeah. programs with their theme tunes that by chance coincided in some way. And you never quite. It would often be little things. Uh, I remember um, Ian Lee, the broadcaster, saying about Mike Nesmith's video for his song Rio in the late 70s. There's a shot in that where he's at a dance, quite a, a smart disco, and he's wearing his white suit and he's dancing with the lady. But while he's dancing with the lady, his shoe happens to come off <laughs> of its own accord and slide across the room. And he said he found that absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and I watched it and I hadn't seen it at the time when I was little, but I 
totally know from my own experiences exactly what he means. Yeah. It's that kind of thing where it just catches you. It's like, why has that happened? Yeah. You can't put your finger on what it is that's perturbed you about it, but it's just something's caught you off guard and it's like, oh no, 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 I don't like that. You know, you saying this suddenly gives me an insight into our cat who is often disturbed by small everyday things. Perhaps it's it's similar that, that she just doesn't understand. Like, she's startled by the toaster every time. Yeah, that sounds like me. She doesn't understand why we do the mysterious things we do. <laughs> I think a lot of it is just feeling your way through the world that you through a world that you don't understand and the context like seeing something on top of the pops and like top of the pops this is a fun show with music but there's something on it I don't like. Well like to go to go back to the cat mm. meeting us outside like <laughs> if she happens to be behind the garden yeah. and I'm I'm walking there she won't she never recognizes <laughs> our outside cells. <laughs> Because we're supposed to be inside, so she just looks with absolute horror. She doesn't what are understand. You doing it here? This is this another Peter. So, Doctor Who—that was my thing. And I know you were latterly a Doctor Who fan. When would you have come to that? Yeah, I think you've been watching it a long time before. I came to it. Where in the sequence did the five Doctors come? I remember finding that really, really magical. Yeah, so that was 83. That was the 20th anniversary. That was quite early in my in my Doctor Who memories. Speaking of different flavoured nostalgias, it was a series of repeats they did to bridge the gap between Tom Baker and Peter Davison called The Five Faces of Doctor Who, where they'd show a William Hartnell story, a Patrick Troughton story, a John Pertwee story. They also showed The Three Doctors... Then I think they maybe showed a repeat of Legopolis, which would have been on quite recently. But certainly having only ever been used to Tom Baker, and this was, I was very young at the time. Yeah. I wasn't a Doctor Who fan or even really thought that I liked Doctor Who, especially. It was just that scary sci fi program that was on. Oh. Although I did have a toy canine. And there's the first ever Doctor Who with William Hartnell. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? The exiles. Susan and I are cut off from our own planet without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back. In a new series of the adventure game, day trippers from Earth try to outwit the Argons and unravel the mysteries of art. I still get little... This this thing of seeing the past Doctors in quick succession like that and that this character was other people and was looked like other people and was played by other people and particularly like the re- the murky black and white that uh, that first episode and then the cavemen yeah. story after that oh i suppose this is a distinct kind of nostalgia the nostalgia of graininess and murkiness and things i connect with that is um, the sky at night and where they would show the very furthest, most distant things in the universe. And, right. And they would be pixels. It would just be a, a few random blurry pixels. And that was whatever it was. There was something really magical about that because that was the most extreme thing, the furthest, the most energetic, yeah, powerful things in the universe just looked like confused pixels. <laughs> 
Well, I still get nuggets of that Five Faces of Doctor Who nostalgia if I'm watching Tom Baker story and then immediately follow it up by watching a John Pertwee story, for example. I will just get a little nugget of that Five Faces nostalgia, uh, where it's impossible to put into words because it's not just... Oh, it, he's played by another character, played by another actor. This is definitely sort of anchored to that. The juxtaposition in close succession of these different people who are the same person. Yeah. Or the feeling of history of it, of this thing that you, you thought you knew has all these roots. It being shown when I was a particular age, so being tied into that. You have that level of curiosity about the world and you're finding out about the world yeah. and things that are on your telly. Did you ever watch the uh, Royal Institution Christmas Lectures? No, I was less uh, intellectual than you. <laughs> <laughs> that has a lot of nostalgia for me. All the Christmas nostalgia, but also each one of them would be opening up a, a whole other world of science. Well, that was something I liked about coming over to your house, was that your house always seemed like a seat of learning. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you were very into... Tolkien and medieval history. So even at quite a young age, you knew a lot of not academic stuff. Well, probably academic, literary stuff. And then your dad had his study, which had all these books, but also all those yeah. cassettes of classical music that presumably he'd taped off Radio 3 because yeah, that's right. most of them had identical cream covers just made out of a bit of paper with the title typed on. Yes, yeah. Which seemed even more enticing than if they were you know, official releases with the multicoloured sleeves. Or was it, yeah, whatever you call it, the inlay cards. But anyway, yeah, sorry, the Christmas lectures. Yeah, and I suppose also because it's like once a year, you have the, the linking back nostalgia that we were talking about with Star Wars, that you have the fond memories of the previous year, and it just it builds up, it creates this kind of resonance of nostalgia. I suppose so. I guess that's what essentially feeling Christmassy is, isn't it? That it is a resonance from all the previous Christmases yeah, echoing through all your previous yeah. Chris- Christmas experiences. So you've got the, the intellectual learning side of it, whereas we'd be watching... Be watching just a bunch of rubbish. <laughs> Nothing quite so grand as Christmas lectures. Uh, but I suppose we, as a culture, we think of nostalgia as this thing especially appropriate to old people. Mm. But it's kind of curious that we were so focused on nostalgia at such a young age, isn't it? Yes. Like I remember, it must have been you know among my earliest memories. Having like thinking about dreams, for example, and having a dream and thinking, wow, it was so atmospheric. And then, like, how can I get back there? Or having another dream and thinking, what, did I go to the same place as I went in that other dream? Was that the same dream? I have a memory of a, a kind of like a forest. And it was really evocative. It seemed important, but there was no way to express that importance. Like, what do you do about that? You have this <laughs> evocative memory of a forest and it was in a dream and you try talking about it and, and adults will say, well, that's nice. <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> I had some very early and extremely powerful dreams about... I think I've maybe tied it into an episode of Doctor Who that I saw, but that could be conf conflagrating different memories but looking out of my living room window at night and seeing the lights of spaceships going overhead just this endless procession of spaceships going overhead mm. or occasionally there'll be dreams when i'm out in the garden i'm usually somewhere sort of quite domestic and familiar and i'll look up into the sky and see spaceships usually just the lights of spaceships and going oh wow it's 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 real 
And it's, yeah, that's always extremely powerful. And it's not in a corny UFO way or anything like that. It's closest to Close Encounter of the Third Kind at the end with the light show. And it's closest to seeing these mysterious pinpricks of light. Mm-hmm. Or even just looking through telescopes at distant planets and galaxies. But yes, the the most powerful and memorable dreams I have are the ones where I'm looking into the sky either at night or at dusk and seeing things up there that really shouldn't be there. I suppose just like kind of going back to that thought about really early memories of, of dreams makes me think about just the, the mystery of being so young and having so little to look mm. back on, but you don't know that that's strange. You don't know that most of your life you'll have lots to look back on to distract you with. You're right on the edge of this time that most of it you can't remember, and that to you is normal. But it's also really curious. You want to know, you want to find a context for yourself. Maybe that's part of what that nostalgia comes from, of trying to figure out what what came before. And then also, I I think about things that have happened more, more recently in life, and how often... Like some of my fondest memories and some of my most most intense times in life and memories, I look back on and actually when they were happening at the time, a lot of the things that I, I remember happily weren't really part of it because it was completely new and it mm. was just just things happening. And it's only looking back on them that, that it becomes a story and it has the meaning. Yes, definitely. When you're sort of seeing it in context and as a thing that has happened yeah. and has gone away now. And I think it does require something to be quite intense because I can get very nostalgic about quite recent things still, providing that it was quite an intense and different occasion. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. You say difference and... When there's a transition mm. and a feeling of that won't come again, yes. that can make something really nostalgic. Even if it's like a little transition, like you've been on a holiday somewhere, you're no longer in that place. Yeah, I think so. I think a big part of it is is things that have gone away and aren't going to come back. Like the Christmas feeling, I think I maybe got quite obsessed by the Christmas morning feeling because I remember one year, and I think it was just, I was probably like, 13, 14 or 15, that sort of age, when I was starting to get obsessed with that, capturing that nostalgia thing and coming up for Christmas, thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward to Christmas morning because I'll, yeah. you know, the intensity yeah. of that Christmas morning feeling, that's going to be, oh, that's going to be great. I love that. And then waking up about five or six in the morning and thinking, oh, this is weird. This feels normal. This feels like a normal day. <laughs> I'm not feeling it. And then, oh, well, I'll go back to sleep and it'll come. So going back to sleep and then waking up at like eight or whenever it is that you know, my little sister would be getting it. No, she wouldn't be there. Or she might be. But like my little brother, you know, waking up and getting up to excitedly open his presents. And, and I remember that just this crushing feeling of like, this feels like a normal day. Where is it gone? Oh, no. Where's the Christmas sensation gone? Why isn't it here? What What's happened to it? Ah. So that probably about 88, 89-ish, yeah. I think that would have been. I think I remember 87 still being quite Christmassy. I don't have a distinct memory of that happening to me, although it must have happened in a way and that Christmases no longer meant the same thing as they meant when I was 
really little and everything was just absolutely exciting. A time when it no longer became all about the presence and more about the people. Yeah, although it happened when I was still excited about the present. Ah, maybe that's the problem. Maybe a bit less so, but I think it is just sort of, you know, as you're growing up and getting older and like, maybe this is it, that we started to get nostalgic as we'd come out of childhood and we were getting nostalgic of what we'd just left behind quite recently when we were sort of 14, 15, 16, and that, like, we'd, we'd become teenagers, and yeah. so it's like, it was. J- it had just gone. It felt a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. The things that you're you're missing and you're not feeling anymore. It's like, why am I not getting quite so excited about Doctor Who as I was? Why is that not like... Because I also still remember the first time I watched Doctor Who and it didn't really do it for me. Whereas like the previous week's episode had just been like proper do- wow, Doctor Who. It's just this intense rush of adrenaline and magic and fear and wonder and everything. And and then, like a week later, it's like this is a bit boring. Well, I can't think of a really solid example of that kind of disillusionment. But I did cultivate those magic things, and I did resist that kind of. Uh, I didn't want to turn into one of those people that I would hear saying, "Oh, you know, Christmas. It's it's just for kids, really." No, thinking, well, it's this this thing we enjoy. Why not? enjoy it why why convince yourself that you're not going to enjoy it and then you know want to enjoy as much as you can of it and even if it's not the same as it was when you were little you can still appreciate the atmosphere at that age i couldn't fathom not getting excited over toys like the idea of getting a haul of star wars figures or like an x-wing toy or something on christmas morning yeah yeah it's a confusing time because for so long you've been so much invested in these kinds of things, this is what this is what is exciting. Mm. And although theoretically you could take a step back and you could think, right, all previous generations have gone through this, and <laughs> yeah. uh, in a few weeks' time, I'll no longer be so excited about these toys. But you don't think that way. No, no, it feels like a betrayal, doesn't it? Of how dare you suggest that I, I might one day be like you. Mm your parents thinking oh, I hope it's going to come soon these toys are getting expensive yes. <laughs> you're paying for the name <laughs> you're not even going to enjoy them next year <laughs> but I was like so emotionally invested in Star Wars figures and that is a thing you know, I don't I don't collect toys I'll watch and enjoy Star Wars and I'll watch you know the behind the scene things but I don't collect the figures yeah. or anything like that but, uh, and I yeah I, I will I still have a lot of them I, I I like having them but they're not on display or anything like that and it's it's no judgment on any, anyone who does everyone has their own thing that they enjoy but it's Star Wars figures for me was a thing which passed the Doctor Who example I gave I didn't notice it at the time, but I looked back. It was Resurrection of the Daleks followed by Planet of Fire. Resurrection of the Daleks, I remember as being intensely Doctor Who. And I think because it was quite an intense show, it was extremely violent, full of Daleks, full of sudden death. And it was followed by Planet of Fire, which was a bit more talky and a bit more about ideas. And it had a new companion, Perry, in her shorts. And I just wasn't really very... I remember just not being very engaged with it or into it and then just a bit bored by the story and a bit bored by the setting and I was never as into Perry and her shorts as some 
young fans clearly were. It didn't feel like a divide at the time, but looking back on it, just my reaction to those two different stories, that one felt like childhood Doctor Who and the other one I was a bit bored by. And then the subsequent ones, uh, Caves of Androzani is a, you know, a classic story. People love it. I thought it was fine. It was all right. And then the Colin Baker ones, I never quite got that childhood Doctor Who buzz back from. So the last one, the last story of my childhood was Resurrection of the Daleks. Yeah. But I do remember the last time I took out my Star Wars figures to play with. We're going very poignant here. Yeah, I took them out to play with and I just couldn't get into it. It's like, oh, it's, this isn't this isn't happening. I, I sort of <laughs> forlornly put them away again. It's like, oh, well, that's, uh... that's that then, I guess. Oh no! <laughs> Maybe there could be a kind of a a kind of a hipster venue that you could go to and play with Star Wars figures yeah, on a eat, grand scale. Eat sweets. Eat a big spread like you're at Mark McLean's birthday party. <laughs> big spread of sweets till you're sick. <laughs> this must have been something I told you as well. This is the first time that I felt old. Was it? It must have been Mark's. 11th birthday party possibly I can't remember which one 10th or 11th I I think you were there it was when he lived in Lesingham I don't remember if you were there or not but his parents had put out this big spread of all sorts of a huge table full of goodies the whole thing mostly sweets I seem to remember whoa I I was Uh. guzzling this back and I started to feel quite sick. Oh. And even at the time, I kind of thought, oh, I'm getting a bit old for this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Here's a Star Wars figure question for you. Did you. When you played with Star Wars figures, did you play Star Wars? That's a really good question. It's quite hard for me to think back into playing with Star Wars figures or toys in general. It's such a natural thing at that time in life. Mm. And then suddenly it's not. It, it's, it's like as if you got to some stage in life and we just stopped being able to speak yes. and, or even having any interest in speaking. And then somebody reminds remember the time when we used to speak? <laughs> and you're just like, well, what, what did we talk about? <laughs> Was it you or somebody told me that lambs dream and sheep don't dream? Yeah. That sounds familiar. That, that kind of hit me. It's, quite, it's very poignant. I think I, I came across that true fact somewhere. I don't know how, how one would know. So I, mean, I, I think I don't really... I don't know. Cause I, I never played Star Wars, unless I was with other people, in which case they, they'd want to play Star Wars. I think probably yes. Ah, okay. But I don't remember clearly. I made up that the, the characters were just other characters uh, and they weren't necessarily along the goodies and baddies lines as delineated by the Star Wars universe. The game that I was attempting to play when I realised that I couldn't do it anymore was I used to have these wooden building blocks and I'd make them into like a bridge, a bit like the Star Trek oh, okay, yeah. Enterprise Bridge. So there'd be like different different positions that they'd be on. And that yes, I got all the wooden blocks out and I got the Star Wars figures and I set up this bridge of some spaceship and I wasn't playing Star Trek either I was just I always made up my own things I never did preset stories I think because those stories had been told already I had no reason to yeah. retell the Star Wars story because I always had this interest in those Alistair MacLean films like Where Eagles Dare oh. where it'd be like a team and you were never quite sure who would die out of the main team or when and who would survive I was always quite fascinated by that, so I often like to have you know, a team, and I would just, oh, who shall I, you know, when will I kill someone off? As far as I remember, I did play Star Wars with Star Wars figures, but before that, we had these uh, 
Playmobil Knights. Oh, yes, uh, I, Rich, I remember that. Richard had um, pirates and uh, cowboys as well. But then we also had this these kind of like older plastic figures that we got secondhand somewhere that were like a kind of older generation. I had a whole kind of mythology around them where there was this figure called Saturn who appeared every hundred years and there was a kind of religion that built up around him. But then the older generation, that was was King Arthur and um, the Knights of the Round Table. Wow, so it's quite complex. Who sort of fitted into that. Yeah, I suppose it was like mixtures of the Catholic religion and like the idea of Jesus coming back. (laughs) Of course, yeah. With science fiction and King Arthur and uh, (laughs) all sorts of things. I think my my things are always a lot less learned than yours going back your books being inspired by Tolkien and mine being inspired by Doctor Who <laughs> I don't know I think it's what we were talking about earlier it's the grass is always greener on the other Probably, side yeah. before we wind this thing up one of those notes I made is, is kind of relevant to this part and the, the, the loss of magic because I have a a clear memory from uh, class one at primary school five years old and being a bit shocked to hear the people all of the other people there, it seemed to me, somebody talk, was talking about Blue Peter. They were so scornful. And the reason they were scornful were, it's just for kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A five-year-old. <laughs> I, I felt embarrassed. I quite enjoyed watching Blue Peter. It maybe wasn't like the, the best thing in the world, but I just didn't understand why they were so angry. Like, even if they didn't like it, so what? It's... <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It still persists yeah. to this day on Twitter. But I suppose a lot of childhood was about one-upmanship and, and trying not to feel like you're doing the wrong thing. So that was a perfect way for kids to catch each other out by, oh, you're interested in this kids thing. So. Making sure everyone's doing the right thing and doing the right thing in the right way. Yeah, that's one good thing about growing up that you realise that you don't have to care about being caught out about these things. You can be a bit of a rogue. You can be anything. There are lots of good things about growing up, frankly. I'm just going to go out of my door. I'm not going to tell anyone. Yeah. I'm going to go into a shop. I'm going to use some of my own money and I'm going to buy an ice cream, whichever one I fancy. (laughs) I'm going to buy the one I fancy. No one's going to say, oh, are you sure you don't want that one? That one's nicer. Yeah. And then a bit later, I can buy myself a can of Coke and no one was going to say, oh, but you had an ice cream earlier. And isn't it great that ice cream is still nice? Isn't it? <laughs> yes. There's no guarantee. As we learned from this discussion, there was no guarantee of that. <laughs> we might be. have attained the power to buy ice cream in any quantity at any time, but lost the desire. <laughs> Just being able to do anything you want within reason like obviously not on a work day <laughs> but even like I, I still appreciate at work that I can go to the loo without having to ask someone if it's okay do you remember how you felt on your last day of school yes I remember as I've been as I was saying earlier um, having that feeling of right I've seen other people when they get to their last day of school they become nostalgic not in the aesthetic sense but in the weepy sense yes i'm not that's not gonna happen to me i'm not i'm gonna have no regrets for leaving this this place i'm not not definitely not gonna have any nostalgia about this and then getting to my last day and having a twinge of nostalgia (laughs) about it really really trying to suppress it i had this thing occasionally when i was a child that i would occasionally think to myself 
oh, I'm a child. This isn't going to be something that will last forever. And it's weird that I'm one now, but all these other people around me, they're not children anymore. They used to be. But I'm yeah. I'm going through that and there'll be a time when I'm not. And that used to slightly blow my mind that it's actually happening to me now. What are the chances <laughs> that I'm a child when for so much of your life you're not one? And I'm saying that now aged 46. This is the unusual time, yeah. Yes, that's it. Yes, this is this is the outlier in your life when you get to be the child. And yeah, same as be, being at school and not in a sentimental or nostalgic way, but just... Here I am at school. This is a thing that I'm doing that I won't be doing forever, but I'm doing it now. And that's a really strange notion. And so on my last day at school, it was just this feeling of it's finished. This thing that I've been doing for as long as I can remember, yeah, since aged four. And now I'm 18. So, so that's a big amount of time. It's a big jump. My secondary school experience petered out in a weird way. I had a really bad time in sixth form, so I dropped more and more classes. So I ended up essentially just doing sociology. So I I still went to school, but I spent a lot of time in the sixth form common room just sitting around chatting to my mate Andrew. Occasionally, like I'd turn up, but I'd have no lessons. I'd just sit there. I think I couldn't... Either I didn't want to admit to my parents that I didn't have much to do at school, or I, it was just habit. It was just compulsion, just like, yeah. it's a school day, you have to go to school. So I turned up for... I think I had registration as well, because I remember we had sixth form teachers, so I'd turn up for registration. That's probably what it was, that we had to be there for that. And then I had no lessons, or one lesson in the afternoon for an hour, but I'd stay the whole day and sit there. So it did peter out in quite an unsatisfying way, but it's still a thing I had to go to. But I do remember the very final day. It's like, I don't have to do this anymore this is it this is this has stopped after 14 years after being from aged four to being an actual literal adult aged 18 it's just stopped and I don't have to turn up for registration and sit there with Andrew all day talking about nothing and irritating each other I definitely don't take it for granted being an adult I like it, it, it's still I still appreciate not having to do those things <laughs> I think I was thinking more about coming to the end of university and that twilight zone of where it's exam season and you're coming into the places, you're going to the library to revise or something, but the actual things have stopped. And thinking of it as like, you know, when if you're playing a computer game and you've you've solved one level, you've won it, but you've you've kind of gone back into it. Yes. All the characters, although the non-player characters are, are sort of going through the motions but nothing is really happening. I have so many dreams where I have gone back, usually voluntarily. Ah. I've decided to go, like, not high, not adult education, but actual literal secondary school. It's always secondary school. Uh, I actually know it's occasionally K-Thorpe, occasionally primary school. I'm there with <laughs> me and a few other adults are sitting around with these seven-year-olds going, this, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, most of this stuff. I have had dreams of, of being back there in recent years but i think i've started not to at some level i've i've realized that i'm not that age i think for most of my life they were dreams of just being somehow back there but i think now there is some other explanation or lack of it but i i do think of myself as as not belonging yeah the rare times i have ones where i go back to primary school it's odd because there's that sensation of i don't really fit in with the other pupils (laughs) for obvious reasons i'm considerably older than them but also 
<laughs> also, the teachers, which I used to fear and dislike, I actually just end up chatting to them because we're closer in age and we have more in common. And we, we, we get on quite well. It's interesting that you still identify as a pupil. Yes. Because that's the only, the only role that you you had when you were... Exactly. In that environment. But the teachers like me more because I'm better behaved. I'm more in control of myself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a well-behaved pupil. And also I'm older, so I'm better at the work because it's basic spelling. <laughs> Which is all maths. things that they like, yes. <laughs> yes. But also I'm a grown-up, so we can just have a normal grown-up conversation like you would with your manager at work or that kind of thing. Yeah. But the ones where I go back to secondary school, it does feel like going back to secondary school, but I know I've decided to go back. It's always this feeling of like, no, I hated this. What am I doing? Yeah. You know, I've been given some brochure or something and I've gone oh that's a good idea and ended up back here like no someone's talked me into this or I've you know I've been tricked to agreeing to do this and it's seeming like a good idea. I sometimes get dreams where I have I just realized that there was another exam I had to do that I completely forgot about and I just have this sinking feeling of oh no there was another one. (laughs) Yes I know that feeling. Oh and I haven't and years have gone by yes. and I've done no work towards it. Yeah, I'm sure I've had those. I've had similar ones as well where it's always the same. Because I've had lots of shop jobs and I've worked in a few offices, but I've done lots and lots of different retail jobs. But it's always when I used to work in a little shop making and selling blinds in Newport Pagnell. Oh, yeah. uh, I used to make the vertical blinds. So it's, you know, 15, 18 years ago. And it suddenly occurs to me, oh, I haven't turned up for work in like, in all these years <laughs> yeah they'll be wondering yeah. where i've got to and then me having to yeah, yeah. go along and go oh hi sorry about that i just <laughs> i just sort of completely, completely forgot my mind yeah or occasionally the petrol station job i had when i was 18 having to go back there and yeah the same thing also annoying because oh now i've got to regularly spend a day working in a petrol station on top of all the other things i have to do this yeah, is a drag yeah. <laughs> what must you think of me? I'd like, I'd like to try and be a good employee, and I haven't turned up for work in eighteen years. That's great. How how our dreaming minds at no point during that scenario does your mind stop and think? Could there be a reason for this? It takes a lot to of inconsistencies to to actually trigger that feeling of what is really happening here. I, I had one um, earlier this year where. I was at my uh, parents' house. My dad was telling me that the, the, the police were coming. And I said, well, did you tell them that, that there's nothing happening here? We don't need them. It, it's okay. And he said, yeah, he, tr- he told them, but they said they would send some, a patrol over anyway. <laughs> and then somehow this escalated into every relative that I can think of was like gathered in the living room and spread out into the kitchen and everybody was like talking at once and there's sheer chaos and and my mum was on the video call to the uh, chief of police trying to explain that we didn't need police but she'd accidentally pressed the button for sign language (laughs) and so she was having to try to improvise sign language (laughs) to communicate with the chief of police at some point and it just like got so much that I realized and I just turned to my dad and said, this is a dream, isn't it? And he didn't confirm or deny it, but it was too late then. And for a few brief minutes, um, I just went outside, maybe did some flying around, just kind of did, did my own thing. I rem- that reminds me, actually, one of your 
dreams we should say to anyone who's still listening at this point peter spent a long time uh, do you still do it you write do, you used to write down your dreams a lot uh, intermittently yeah uh, i don't write them all but yeah and one i really remember and i can't remember the exact details but it's when you're talking to your mum you know it's a oh, dream I think and I, she doesn't know i it's think a dream. i know the, yeah she says well if it's a dream punch me yeah and i found that re- that was really odd and evocative i yeah that's a really good sort of <laughs> thought thought yeah. exercise and you were just horrified by this idea like, i'm not gonna punch yeah. you and she's saying yeah but it's a like, dream even if it is a dream <laughs> that i don't want to but then just being challenged of but if it is a dream it doesn't matter yeah. it doesn't hurt anyone i'm not gonna punch you <laughs> it's so sneaky dreams like even though you've realised it, it's a dream and you're lucid and you're you're doing all the lucid things that you want to do, and so quickly it can just distract you with things and you get absorbed into whatever it is because it knows what it knows what you care about <laughs> and it knows what what would obsess you, mm-hmm. and so it just like it gives you those things which completely fill your mind. Well, on that note, we should probably wind it up. And go to bed. Yes. Because it's past, past our bedtime. It's, past, it's still light outside, though. I can see other children our age outside playing. I, I'm not sure I want to play with them. I'm a bit scared of them. <laughs> yeah, they do look like some of the rougher boys. All oh, right. Well, well, thank you for coming for on and, and, yeah. uh, and talking about all these various things. Well, I won't do the normal rundown of all the contacts and social media things because I can never remember what they are except Twitter is at retro underscore tube that's the only one I I can ever remember so if anyone wants to follow us on Twitter please do if this is the first episode you've listened to this is very atypical most of them are nothing like this not least because Peter isn't normally on them yeah so don't don't worry don't be put (laughs) off or or alternatively don't be too excited (laughs) normally we're talking about specific TV shows yeah the normal one is great I recommend it thank you very much in the meantime, we will be back to normal service soon with a regular episode. And thank you, Peter. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.